0: But we're going to turn now to Hosea, and we want to learn together as a church. We, we think it really matters that we hear what God has to say to us, that we don't just imagine what God is like, but we allow him to speak to us. And We believe we, he does that through his words. So I'd love you to turn to Hosea chapter 8. Um, we've been working our way through um, this book pretty fast, and we're going to try and cover chapters 8, 9, and 10 this afternoon. And we're not going to cover everything. Um, I'm going to try and show you some of the themes that run through it and some of the ways that I believe God is challenging us um, as a church. But why don't we pray? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Um, These are difficult chapters. These are probably the most difficult of the chapters in Hosea. Um, So let's ask that God would help us to listen and to know his spirit helping us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God of love, a God who speaks because you love us a God who says what we need to know, not what we might like to know. Father, we pray that we'd let you teach us, that we would listen hard to what you have to say to us, and that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read um, Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, just to get us started. Um, it says this, Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stork has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. What sound wakes you up in the morning? What's the first sound that you hear to start your day? It may be different every day. I appreciate that. But just think about it for a second. On a normal day when you're getting up, um, perhaps to go about your business for the day, what sound is it? Do you have an alarm clock? I guess most of us do. We have an alarm that wakes us up. What sort of alarm do you go for? Do you go for the gentle alarm? says, morning, hello, it's nice, it's nice, quiet, quiet, waking, waking. Or do you need a slightly more uh, robust alarm than that? Supposing you had to catch a flight in the morning at like four in the morning, what sort of sound would you want to wake you up? You'd need something that would cut through your sleepiness and actually stir you to action. A soft, gentle alarm will not do the job when you are very sleepy. Well, here's the sound that starts Hosea chapter 8. It's a trumpet. A trumpet blast. And this trumpet is an alarm. It is designed to come from God to cut through the sleepiness of His people's hearts and to wake them up. Wake up, Israel. There is a problem. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. That is a picture of great threat hovering over the land. They need to wake up. And if we think that this is just for some ancient time, when you get to the book of Revelation, if you check this out sometime later, in chapter 8 and 9 of Revelation, you hear trumpets being blasted. And then you hear and see an eagle. Because we still live in a world that needs to hear the trumpet blast. In Revelation 8 and 9, there are seven trumpets that blast to wake up a sleeping world. And that's what Hosea chapters 8, 9, and 10 are going to do for us. A trumpet blast to wake us up. And why Why do we need to be woken up? Why is it so important? Why does Israel need to be woken up? Well, the second half of verse 1, because the people have broken my covenant. You are in great danger, Israel, because you've broken the covenant. Now, if you've been tracking through Hosea with us, that should now be familiar, this idea. We've talked about covenant every week that we've met. Just remember, I, want, I want you to get this book of Hosea in your head. It's not difficult to remember. Chapters 1 to 3 tell the story of Hosea and Goma, this marriage of unfaithfulness that is a picture of God and his people, a picture of the way that Israel have treated their God, the God of covenant love. That was chapters 1 to 3. In chapters 4 and 5, we heard the charge that God has against his people. The charge that they have gone off after other gods. In chapter 6, we saw this last time. There is a call for the people to come back. Come on, Israel, come back. But they can't. They can't because they're like the morning mist. and, And all those images we saw last time. And by the time we get to chapter 8, these are really the strongest and the loudest trumpet blasts to wake up Israel. But I want to do something before we get into this. Before we look at these warnings, we need to just understand something about how the Bible works. You, you constantly, when you're reading the Bible, you need to remember what time it is. I don't know if you ever played that game, um, What's the Time, Mr. Wolf? We used to play it at school. Used to, you know, That was a ridiculous game. But What's the Time, Mr. Wolf? really should be asking the question, What's the Time? Because we live in a different time to 8th century BC, Israel. We live under what is called the new covenant. So when we see this word covenant, we need to have our antennae up and we need to be thinking carefully about it. Israel lived under this covenant with God, this love that God had for his people. But two hugely important things have changed since the days of Israel, such that we now live under a new covenant. The covenant that we experience with God is different. It's not completely different, but it's new. And it's incredibly important that we understand the difference. Otherwise, we're going to end up reading this wrong. Because we don't live in Israel's day. We live now. So let me just do like a few minutes on this idea of covenant and why covenant matters and what it means to live now under the new covenant. Covenant is God's chosen way of relating to humanity. As God thought about how to relate to humans, he said, I'm going to establish a covenant, a commitment, a faithful agreement And God has entered into a relationship, a covenant of grace. Now, it is a covenant of grace. Even back for Israel, it was a covenant of grace because it was undeserved and beautiful where God committed himself to his people and in response called his people to live a life of faithful worship to him. Now, I know this might sound a bit complicated, but we just got to get this clear. It's not an equal relationship. It's not like we're equal partners in this. It is God who takes the initiative. It's God who saves. It's God who redeems. We saw that right at the start of our service. It's God who takes Israel to be his people. And it's the people who respond in love. It's that way round. And that's where the law fits in, right? So God saves his people. He commits himself to his people. Then he gives them his law, not as the way into the covenant. The law is not how you get into the covenant relationship. God's already done that. The law is how to live within that covenant. So this covenant relationship that God has established, it brings with it obligations, to joyfully and lovingly obey the God who saved us. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, right? God says, I love you. I've saved you. You're mine. I've chosen you out of all the nations. You're precious to me, my treasured possession. And then he says, now, you shall have no other gods before me. This is how you respond to God. So let me spell this out. This is not a covenant of works. You see, sometimes we think, you know, back in the Old Testament, it was a covenant of works, right? Where you had to do some stuff, and if you obeyed enough, God would bless you. That didn't work, so God tried grace in the New Testament. That's not, that's not the story. It's always been a covenant of grace. There would be no relationship between God and his people if there was no grace. It's always been grace. But there was a problem with this old covenant, It was never intended to be the final form of relationship between God and his people. And you can see the problem just when you read Hosea chapters 8, 9, and 10. There are two major problems with this old covenant. The first one is in verse 5 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 5. Throw out your calf, idol, Samaria, my anger burns against them how long will they be incapable of purity? They can't do it. So God has entered into this covenant of grace. He's given this law for them to joyfully and lovingly respond to him in worship, and they can't. Like a moth drawn to a light. So the people's hearts are drawn to sin and impurity. Rather than pursue a loving, joyful, faithful relationship to the God who saved them, instead they run off after other gods and ignore the God who loves them. And in many ways, right, it just seems foolish. You say, well, why would they do that? Why would you abandon the God of love and chase off after other gods who aren't gods at all? Why do you reject what is good? Or chapter 8, verse 12, God says, I wrote for them the many things of my law. God says, look, I loved you. I gave you my law so you knew how to respond to me. I, I loved you and gave you the law. The law is always a gift of grace. But they regarded them as something foreign. You heard my laws, but your heart spoke a different language. And so you didn't hear The love. You heard them as burdens. You heard them as slavery. And so you ran off after other gods. You see, they cannot... This was the problem with the old covenant, this covenant of grace that people could not because their hearts were drawn to sin. And that led to the second problem. And that's the problem of forgiveness. Because if you refuse to obey God after all that God has done, if you break his covenant, then you will experience God's right punishment. God always said that was the case. He said, you're my people, I love you. Here is my law, lovingly obey me and worship me. But if you are unfaithful and chase other gods, I will punish you. But God's Anger is not like ours. His punishment is not like ours. He's patient. He's slow to anger, but there will come the point when the trumpet will sound. And so it says um, in verse 13 of chapter 8, though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me and they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Look at that. He will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. Go over to chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9 says, They've sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. There's the problem with the old covenant. The old covenant, they could not obey, and so there was ultimately no forgiveness under the old covenant. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. But that is because God always knew that he had a plan. His plan was always that there would be a new covenant. And since the days of Hosea, God has done something new. Two monumental things have happened. And those two things change everything. Firstly, Jesus has come. And in the coming of Jesus, God has dealt with the problem of forgiveness. Remember, God says, I will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Well, in the coming of Jesus, God has punished his people's sin in Jesus so that they might find forgiveness. You see, it is Jesus that means final and full forgiveness can now be found. That was not possible under the old covenant. There were sacrifices, there was stuff, but it it could never truly deal with sin. And suddenly Jesus comes and now there's forgiveness. Like proper, deep, gone forgiveness. And not only is there forgiveness, the second monumental thing that's happened is that the Spirit has been poured out. The Holy Spirit has been given and it is the Holy Spirit who is the power of God to change our hearts, to enable our obedience. Um, We're going to come back to Hosea in 8 in a minute. If you've got a Bible, um, head over to Hebrews chapter 9. Let me just show you this. If you haven't got a Bible, just listen up and I'll read it to you. Here's Hosea chapter, um, Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to go from verse 6. In fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. If there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. See, this is what we've been saying, right? That the problem with the covenant, the old covenant, was that the people couldn't obey. God found fault with the people and said, "'The days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel.'" and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. See, he's going to change the heart, that is the Spirit's work, so that our, the law is no longer something out there that I have to obey, but now becomes something in, inside, written by the Spirit, that I now am moved to obey. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Here's the, here's the best bit, look. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You've got to compare that to Hosea chapter 9, verse 9. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. In the new covenant, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Do you see the change? You see, we live under a new covenant where there is now pardon and power. What was not possible under the old covenant is now possible under the new covenant. There is now forgiveness for sin, complete forgiveness where God will remember our sins no more because they've been fully and finally and perfectly punished on Jesus at the cross. And there is now power, power to live, power to live this law that God has written on our hearts. Now, the reason I've just taken quite a bit of time to explain that is because it means that as we read Hosea, we've got to remember what time is it. These words are written to people still under the old covenant. So as we read about God's judgment, about God's punishment for sin, actually, if we know Jesus, we read it saying, wow, that's what Jesus took for me. That is what I've been saved from. That is what my unfaithfulness deserves. But Jesus, you did that for me. Because there is now pardon that wasn't possible under the old covenant. And we read it. We read commands of God now saying, Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you cause my heart to long for that? So that's the big thing i want you to see this new covenant pardon and power but now let's look at just some of the details of hosea 8 9 and 10 and we're going to go pretty quick through this and there's a basic principle i want us to see and that is sowing and reaping that's how we're going to just think about these um, passages now with all that i've said about power and pardon come back to hosea chapter 8 verse 7 Here's what I think is the key verse in our section. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. That's what God says to his Old Testament people. He says, you sow and you reap. What you sow in life is what you end up reaping. And the reason I think that's such an important theme in Hosea is because if you turn over one page to Hosea chapter 10, at the end of our section, God says, sow righteousness for yourselves and reap the fruit of unfailing love. And so everyone in this world is either sowing to the winds and will reap a whirlwind, or is sowing righteousness and will reap eternal and unfailing love. So the big challenge for us from these chapters is, what are you sowing? We all understand, right, that sowing and reaping. You're taught this very early on in life. You know that lesson when you get given your bit of cotton wool and your cress seeds, right? And you make your little cotton wool a little bit damp and you put your cress seeds on and you go home and they grow. And it is like the most exciting thing ever. And although you don't like cress and it tastes disgusting. You still have an egg and cress sandwich because you grew it, therefore it's precious. We learn this. You sow and you reap. And that principle holds true in the moral and spiritual world too. But I think that's a link that's constantly being challenged in our world. We're constantly being told, no, you can sow something and not reap the consequences of it. That there is a disconnect, there is a breaking of that principle. Yeah, we love that principle when it comes to cress, right? And we love that principle when it comes to sort of good stuff and growing things. But we're not so keen on it when it comes to sin and its consequences, we see this all the time in our culture, where people live breaking that connection, either by ignoring the future consequences of our actions. Essentially saying, who cares? I'm going to live in the present. I'm going to live for now. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Do what you want. Just enjoy now. We live in such a now-focused world. It's all about enjoying now. And forget the consequences. Just don't think about it. Ignore that. Because who knows? You might as well just enjoy life now. So you either ignore it, or you deny the future consequences. You can do this. It won't do any harm to anyone. You can live like this. It won't matter. Our society can embrace these ideals. Our society can accept this way of living because it's not going to cause any harm. It's all going to be fine. You know, that, right, that is the oldest lie in the world. It's the first lie that was ever told. God said to the first man and woman, if you eat this fruit, you will die. Sow this, eat this, and there will be consequences, you will die. The serpent came into the garden and said, eat this, and you won't die. It... The serpent's lie was to break sowing and reaping. You can sow to yourself and it won't do you any harm. And God over and over again in the Bible says, you will sow, you will reap what you sow. that's what God is saying to his people. He's saying you're sowing a wind and you're reaping the whirlwind. One of the other principles of sowing is that you normally sow reaping is that you expect to reap more than you sow, right? That's sort of how reaping works. If you had to if you got one seed for every seed you planted, life would be really exhausting. The point is you you actually it multiplies. Harvesting has a multiplication effect. And God says it's true in the spiritual world. If you sow to the wind, you will reap a whirlwind. You see, it's funny, isn't it? I think sometimes people say, oh, God's a bit harsh, isn't it? Eat a fruit and you'll die. It's a bit over the top. No, that's how it works. If you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. There is an escalation, there is a multiplication of our choices. And so we think, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just one little thing, it doesn't really matter. But God said, no, it does. We need to wake up, hear the trumpet. Well, what is it exactly that Israel were doing? I realize we haven't touched on a lot of verses yet. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing my best. Um, what is it exactly that Israel were doing? Well, I would sum it up as sowing to the wind is DIY religion. Right? They're basically just doing it their own way. That's, that's their... Kind of that's what it means for them to sow to the wind. So let me just race through some, okay? So we've actually looked at some of the verses. Um, Chapter 8, verse 4. They set up kings without my consent. They choose um, princes without my approval. So rather than seek God and ask what sort of rulers he wants, they just appoint whatever rulers they want. We want the impressive. We want the powerful. We want the strong. We want those who will... Uh, win battles for us. Let's choose rulers. They just do what they want. Halfway through verse 4, With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, Samaria. You see, there's this this calf idol keeps reappearing through chapters 8, 9, and 10. They've made an idol. They've made their own gods. Remember, this is Israel in the north. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Jerusalem is in the south. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where you went to worship. But the first king of the northern kingdom, a guy called Jeroboam, he went, well, if they all go to Jerusalem, they're going to go back to David as their king. We don't want that. So he put two calves, one in the south and one in the north, and said to Israel, just worship them doesn't matter, just let's let's make them our gods. And God speaks so clearly. He says, it's not God. It's a lump of metal. And yet you worship it. But they basically think they can do whatever they want. They make their own rules. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, they became altars for sinning. You see, it looks like they're being religious. They've got loads of altars. Let's make some more altars. What should we do today? Let's make another altar. This is cool. Let's make some more altars. And God says, I don't want more altars. There's one altar. It's in Jerusalem. But you just keep making more because you think, well, I'll do it my way. As long as it's vaguely religious, surely God will accept me. Surely God will, you know, he knows, he knows that I've got a good heart and he wants me to do the right thing. And he no, God wants us to do what He said, He's spoken clearly about how we're to worship him. And Israel are basically making their own rules. They're not listening to God. It says in chapter 9, verse 8, The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him. On all his paths and hostility in the house of God. They don't listen to God's word. They're not interested in the Prophet. It says the Prophets are considered a fool and the inspired person, a maniac. We don't want to listen to God's word. We're going to go our way. We're going to do things the way that we want to do it. And they rely on their own strength. They think that they have the power to do it themselves. So, chapter ten, verse thirteen: You've planted wickedness. You've reaped evil. You've eaten the fruit of deception because you've depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. They think they've got the strength. In other words, this is a nation that has put self at the centre of all they do. They basically do whatever seems right to themselves. They appoint kings for themselves. They make gods for themselves. And when self takes center stage in a society or in a culture, you are sowing the wind. And you will reap a whirlwind. That's the trumpet blast. And God says so clearly, I'm going to punish you. He could not be more clear. And in fact, he speaks in such strong language about what he will do to them. I want to read from chapter 9, verse 10. This is what God means when he says, you will reap the whirlwind. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. (laughs) Right, right? God doesn't want to punish Israel. He loves them. If you're... Dying of thirst in the desert. What could be better than finding some grapes? It's like grapes. Grapes in the desert. God says, that's how I felt when I found you. I was like, oh, Israel, you're like grapes in a desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. This is why Jesus goes to the fig tree, by the way. That's another story, another sermon. But when they came to Baal, Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, and became as vile as the thing they loved. There it is. They turned away from God. They did what they wanted. Sexual immorality, idolatry, turning away from God, self at the center. So, verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of everyone. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I've seen Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. Give them, Lord, what will you give them? Give them wounds that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted, their root is withered, They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. Can I be honest? As I was preparing this, I wanted to miss this bit. I I, I, I sort of wanted to go, well, we're doing three chapters. I have to cut some of it. Why don't I cut this bit? Because this is so graphically hard to hear. But I was very convicted by God as I was preparing. No, you don't you don't get to edit the Word of God. You don't get to decide what people should and shouldn't engage with. Because God's, when God says that people who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind, this is what he means. And when you get to chapter 10... There's a picture of the people calling out to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Remember, God is a God of love. It was like grapes in a desert. This brings God no joy and no grief. And yet, this is how God will righteously respond to the wickedness of the people. The serpent was wrong, you know. The first lie is a lie. If we think we can put ourselves at the center and it will make no difference, you're wrong. I plead with you to see that you're wrong. But remember, we live under the new covenant. Remember that we have a God who did not stop at the old covenant and say, well, that's that then. Instead, he sent his own cherished covenant. Offspring. He sent his child to go and take what our rebellion deserves. Can you not feel the weight of this? I know that you know. I know that most of us know that Jesus died for us. But do you not see how much he paid? Do you not see what it cost him? Because of all my wickedness, God hated Jesus there at Calvary. Because of all my wickedness, God brought out his cherished offspring to be slain on my behalf. You see, my sin still deserves exactly this horrific punishment. But God paid it so that I don't have to. And he paid it so that you don't have to. And if you read these words and think that God is too harsh and too cruel, you're wrong. He loves you. He gave his son so that you don't have to reap the whirlwind. We have. We've all sown the wind. We've all been unfaithful to God. But in the new covenant, there's pardon. And I plead with you, come to this one. Don't be someone who sows to the wind and refuses the pardon that Jesus offers. And let me just now bring us round to the, to the finish. And we have way over time. I'm really sorry. But if you look at um, chapter 10, verse 12, here's the positive. It's not just don't sow the wind. That is, don't just put yourself at the center. Instead, sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord. What time is it? Can you hear the trumpet blast? Can you hear the alarm clock? What time is it? It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to turn from self. It's time to turn and to break up the hard ground of our hearts. And we say, we can't, we can't. And the new covenant says, you can because the Spirit has been poured out, and it is the Spirit who we say, Holy Spirit, come, break the unplowed ground of my heart. Where is your heart still heart? Where is your heart still pursuing self and saying no to God? Would you ask this afternoon that God, by his spirit, would break your hard heart, that he would break up the unplowed ground, that you might sow righteousness, that is, that you might do what is right, that is, that you might not put yourself at the center, but that you might rely upon him, that you might throw all of your confidence on him, and that you might say, Lord, how can I joyfully and wonderfully honor you? So that when we read God's word, it's not a burden to us, but it becomes the joyful way that we respond to Him. This is what it means to live as a Christian. It's what it means to live under the new covenant. That we are now those who can sow righteousness. So, listen to these words as we finish. Galatians chapter 6. New Testament picks up exactly the same images. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked, and man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will receive eternal life. So, this afternoon, where do you see the temptation to sow to the wind, to sow to the flesh, to put yourself at the center? To say, I want to do it my way. I'll do what I want. Hear the warning. Hear the trumpet blast. And let's ask that by the Spirit we might sow righteousness. That we might sow to please the Spirit. We've got to be proud. What's that going to look like for you? It's tough in a culture that puts self at the center all the time. You're going to need to pray every morning this week. Self, get off the throne. Jesus, be on the throne. Spirit, shape my heart. You're going to need to pray that every morning this week. You're going to need to pray it as you walk into the workplace. Jesus, please, I want to sow to please you. You're going to need to pray that as you get home and you're with your flatmates, with your family. You're going to need to pray as you switch on your internet. You're going to pray as you choose what you're going to watch. All of these things, I want to sow to please the Spirit. I don't want to sow to the wind. Guys, we need to pray. Praise God for a new covenant. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God that we can now sow to please the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you this afternoon that there is pardon and there is power under this new covenant. Lord, as we read of the old covenant, as we read of the people incapable of purity, as we read of the people whose sins could not be forgiven. Lord, it amazes us that you've given us such extraordinary pardon. Lord, help us not to mock you. Help us not to treat you like this is a big joke. We pray that this week we might sow to please the spirit and not sow to please the flesh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.